0: following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship, and for, for more information about our church, and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Okay, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, so we're going to be this morning. We're going to finish up 1 Timothy 5. If you are uh, new with us, we're glad you're with us. We've been going through a series on... The book of first Timothy and in first Timothy five, as we saw last week, this chapter is, is all about caring for other people. And we saw last week that we should see the people of God in our church as family, that we should treat older men as fathers. We should treat older women as mothers. We should treat younger men as brothers and younger ladies as sisters. And if there are true needs in the family, then the church is to rise up and care for the family and we're to serve them. And, and this morning is just a continuation of that same caring mentality. We've seen throughout the book of First Timothy just how God wants the church to be structured and how he wants the church to think. We've seen that in Timothy chapter 1 that that the church is to refute false doctrine and to teach the true doctrine that Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. We saw that the church is to be organized and structured In 1 Timothy 2 and 3, and then in chapter 5, we're seeing how God's people should care for God's people. And specifically in our text today, we're going to see how we should care for our pastors and our elders. Let me just say something at the outset of this before I jump into it. One of the things you're going to notice when you read the Bible is, especially the New Testament, you're going to notice that it was written to the churches or the people or the saints at a certain location. You're going to notice that it was words written for Christian people to receive from God. And one of the challenges that we have when we go into the church is many times pastors like to teach God's word as if it was intended for the non-Christian. But when you read the book of 1 Timothy, you read the book of Ephesians, the book of Galatians, the book of Philippians, whatever it may be, you are reading a book that was written distinctly to Christian people. It was written distinctly to the church. So for us as pastors to try to feed, if you will, non-Christian people with Christian thoughts doesn't really work that well. What we've got to do when we get together in the church is the church is to be gathered for the sake of the pastor then taking the word of God intended for the Christian and giving it to the Christian so the Christian can be equipped to go into their world to serve their friends with the gospel, right? That's really what the church is to be doing. And that's what our job is to be. That doesn't mean we don't present the gospel in church, but it certainly means that you're going to notice the focus is teach God's people from God's word. So God's people can go live out God's mission in this world. That's what we're to be doing. And one of the things we're noticing in first Timothy chapter five is that God's people are to care for God's people in God's church. And we're gonna look at that this morning in dealing specifically with pastors and elders. Now, if you're new with us, let me just before I jump in, so this can, you know, get all the awkwardness out of the way, right? This text is dealing with paying pastors, right? Paying them a salary. This is not because the pastors here are starving and we need money and we we're we're doing a money campaign and all the we're we're just in the process of going through First Timothy, and we just happen to be landing in First Timothy five. 17 through 25, when the Lord happened to bring you here to church on this particular day. All right, so everybody can settle down. Don't uh, think that, you know, uh, the pastor's eating cans of tuna. We have no food, right? That's not what this is about. Okay, so let's stand together. Let's read First Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, and then we will pray <clears throat> together. Now, we we stand here because this is God's word. We honor God by standing and, and acknowledging, Lord, we, this is your word. And we we love you for giving it to us. So this is what God said from the from 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the basis or evidence of two or three witnesses. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have left nothing out in your word about how we should treat one another and care for each other in your church. Whether that's older men, older ladies, younger men, younger ladies, or it's, it's pastors and elders you have made it very clear. And I thank you, before I start, for the joy of leading and caring for this church, because this church has been remarkably caring to its pastors. And we pray that this sermon would not only encourage us, but Father, if you will, let it be a flag that we put in the ground that says, this is who we are, and this is what we will continue to be by the grace of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, you should have got an outline when you walked in the door. There's a big idea at the top, and here's the big idea that we want to kind of get across this morning. Is that God wants his church to care for its leaders by honoring them and holding them accountable. God wants his church to care for its leaders by honoring them and holding them accountable accountable. Now, as we jump into talking about leadership in the church, I think it's important that we keep a couple things in mind as you process this. Anytime you look at leadership, anytime you look at leadership or submission or authority and following or whatever it may be, as a Christian, you should always ask, where did this come from? Is this man's idea that we suddenly made up these, these roles and these ideas and who's in authority, who's in submission, or is this God's idea? And one of the things you're going to notice is in scripture, all authority and all following has been derived and given to us by God. You're going to notice that in the Godhead, the Trinity that we might call it, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, there is God, the Father, who's the authority he authorizes and he creates. There is God, the Son who carries out the the mission of God. And there's God, the Spirit that applies the mission. And so what you see is, you see in a sense, authority, submission, leadership, following in the Godhead. So when you have authority and submission or leadership and following in the church, what you're really seeing is God saying the church is to live out and mirror what is already being done in the Godhead. This is something that began with God. It's something that God gave to the church to reveal to the world something about God. Now you can just do the math on that about how well the church has done. (laughs) And you can wonder why the church scratches her head as to the reality of the Godhead when they don't see the church living in a harmonious relationship between leaders and followers and those in authority and those in submission. Right? The other thing that you need to keep in mind as you read this chapter and we read these sections is in this particular chapter about caring for others and caring for leaders in the backdrop of this chapter, is the power of the gospel. Now, here's what I mean by that. Nowhere in this text is the gospel mentioned. Like, you know, Jesus shows up and we go, okay, there's the gospel, and that's how we need to apply the gospel. Rather, what you see in the backdrop of this text is something fascinating. It shows us the power of the gospel to transform us from being people who demean one another, who disrespect others, and who rail and rebel against leadership, To becoming people who care for one another, who honor one another, and who hold leaders accountable with grace. You see the power of the gospel of Jesus transforming a people to say in the church, the church truly cares for one another and the church truly honors her leaders and truly holds them accountable by the grace of God. That's what you see in the text. It's in the backdrop of the text. You're not going to hear it mentioned a lot in the text because it's not in the text, but in the backdrop of the text is this power of the gospel that's saying, this is how God's people act because of the gospel, because Christ did what he did and the spirit of God fills your heart as a child of God. And Jesus is your King. These are the things that he says. I'm not only commanding these things for you, but I'm empowering you to go do them so that you can reveal something to the rest of the world that is unique. I mean, friends, you don't, have to walk outside these doors very quickly to read question authority. You don't have to listen very closely or very hard to a conversation to hear people, Christian people now, railing against their authority figures. And we would do it all the time. It's as natural as breathing to us. And yet in the church, God says something's going to look different. God's people are not going to disrespect one another. They're not going to dishonor their leaders. They're going to follow leaders, and they're going to hold them accountable with remarkable grace, and they're going to do it in a particular way. And if they do sin in a particular way, those leaders are publicly held to an account. And you're going to see that clearly laid out in Scripture. So when you see those two things, where leadership came from, from the Godhead, and as well the power of the gospel in the backdrop of the text, that will help you when we look at these things and we go, wow, this is really hard. Some of this is awkward. That's okay. It needs to be because we need the transforming power of Christ to do these things well, okay? So let's look at our first point that you'll see on your outline, which is caring for leaders by honoring them. And you're gonna see this in verses 17 and 18, when Paul said that those elders who teach well and who rule well are worthy of double honor. Now, the elders that he's talking about here are the qualified men that he mentions in 1 Timothy chapter three. The ones who are recognized by the church who have served the church, everybody recognizes their leading in this particular way, and they're ordained as church leaders, are spiritually overseeing the church. Now notice that to receive this this double honor, which we'll look at more in a moment, they must do their job well. Meaning, the church should feel the care of hard-working elders. The church should be equipped by hard-working elders. The church should feel the benefits of this type of leadership. Those elders who do this well, he says, are worthy of this double honor. Now this working hard, it just simply means they're willing to put in the wearisome effort in accomplishing. They're willing to perform and serve their task with extreme care. And since they have the church on their heart, you can feel it when you talk to them. It just, it drips off of them. It's as it's natural to them. As breathing to them, their work is important to them because they know it's important to God and hardworking elders enjoy what they're doing, even though it's hard. It's a joy to them to do such a task. You can see the joy of an elder like this in first Peter when first Peter and at the end of first Peter, he writes these words that an elder is one who is to exercise oversight. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly and eagerly. There's a joy about this. Work, right? That he's willing to do it for free, and that's why I think in First Timothy chapter three, when it talks about the the elders, are guys that are already working as elders. You already see them doing it because elders would do the job of an elder for free. They just love serving people. And you'll notice in verse eighteen that Paul used two examples or two pictures of why an elder does what he does. And it's funny these aren't these aren't the best honoring terms if you want to put it that way. Notice what they are. He uses an ox and a field laborer. Now I find this very intriguing in our celebrity status culture of pastors. He's like an ox. You know what an ox does? An ox sticks his head, actually has the, the whole thing put on, the yoke put on him, and the ox puts his head down, and he labors, and he pulls, and he trudges, and he plods, at the direction and discretion of the chief farmer, which in the text would be God. That's a pastor. He's to be plotting, pulling, trudging, laboring, head down, doing his work. He's a field laborer. Notice what does field laborer do? They plant, they water, they watch, they protect, they weed. But notice the field laborer doesn't bring about the produce or the harvest. <laughs> no, their job is to be what? Faithful in planting, watering, protecting, and weeding, just faithfully going about their work, knowing that God is the one who brings about the fruitfulness. Now, these two pictures don't seem very honoring, but they reveal something about the elder work that's remarkably important. It is to be, and it should be, hard work. So if you hear an elder say, boy, my work is really hard, you should say, yeah, bud, it is hard. That's the reality of it. It is hard. You're doing your job. And you know you're doing your job when it's hard work. And elders should see themselves faithfully doing this type of work. I want you to notice here. You're not going to find in this text where it's he is to do these things so that he might get honor for himself. He is to do these things that others might see his fruitfulness. He is to do these things that others might know his name. No, a faithful, hardworking elder does something. He preaches the gospel, he dies, and then he's forgotten. That's what he does. And he puts his head down in the book, and he studies, and he prays, and he works, and he cares over and over and over again, trusting God to bring about the fruit. And we're told that elders who do that kind of hard work then deserve, he says, double honor. It's a really weird Phrase. So what does this mean? And again, I think verse 18 is really helpful to us. On the one side is that we honor hardworking elders by paying them financially. You can see on the text where he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now it's, it's kind of a sarcastic comment by Paul, honestly. What Paul is saying here is, if oxen do their jobs well, or they do their jobs at all, What do you do? You take them into the barn, and you feed them. Why? Because it did their job. And you're feeding them. You're taking care of your oxen. How much more should the church make sure that hardworking elders who are feeding you spiritually are well-fed and taken care of? Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying, "Why, why would you take care of an ox? and yet not take care of your pastor. That doesn't make any sense at all. But then he uses another example of Jesus. A laborer is worthy of his wages. Again, you can see the point that there are to be wages earned or given to elders who work hard. If he works hard, he is worthy of being paid for working hard. Now, some of you may say, look, man, This idea of paying pastors is weird and awkward. I'll get to that because I'm the paid pastor. We can talk about that. Let's get the awkwardness on the table, right? I mean, it's weird and awkward, but as one of my founding members who was in the back of the room said to me earlier, I know this is awkward for you, Dave, but honestly, you founded this church. You earned the awkwardness. And she said, embrace it, embrace it. Scripture shows us this example. In the Old Testament, we see in Second Chronicles that the Old Testament priests were paid by the offerings of the people so they could devote themselves to the law of the Lord. In the New Testament, Paul takes the same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and he says that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. See, elders who rule well and who work hard at preaching and serving the church should be honored by being paid for it. So let me just... Throw in a few things about this as we start. First, it is awkward. It's weird to talk about. Those of you who are new, just get ready. I'm comfortable being awkward on stuff like this. It's fine. It's okay. It's in the Bible. So we have to talk about it, right? But here's the story of our church. Our church has been remarkably good at taking care of her pastors. Our church has made it a plan to make sure that her pastors are cared for. So this is not a plea for money or anything and the like. This church has done it really, really well. And honestly, like I said, in the first service, I'm preaching first Timothy to you at CLF is this if it's, maybe it may be the last time I ever go through first Timothy with you ever again. So that one day when there's a new guy who takes my position and we see him as the pastor of this church, that you will continue to take care of him the way you've taken care of me. That's how I'm seeing this. But it should be noted, if you've grown up at CLF, it is an anomaly for you that churches wouldn't take care of their pastors. I've lived in that. Some churches think that their pastors should live on a meager salary and struggle to make ends meet as a sign of faith. That shows how what a man of God they are. Some believe it's a sign of spirituality so as to make So as to make them really lean into the Lord because if they're really a man of faith, they'll take this small salary and trust God for the rest. Some churches have seen other areas of priority to be more important than paying their pastors. We know of churches, and it's one principle that we've had here in our church that we will not pay our missionary budget and not take care of our missionary budget if we can't take care of our local pastors. We are going to care for them, and we're going to serve them And if need be, we will cut budget stuff in order to do so. I think Paul would be really disappointed with churches who do not see it as a priority to take care of pastors who work hard and serve them well. You also notice something else in the text, that not all elders are paid. Some might be worthy of being paid, but that doesn't mean they have to be paid. For instance, there are qualified men in the church who are lay elders or who are bivocational elders. They, they, they work another job. That's their full-time job. It's outside the church and they love working in that world. And for them to be paid by the church would take them out of the world they're working in. We have two of those in our church. We have Chris Quasafaro and we have, we have Mike Keller. And those guys have faithfully served our church. They are gifts to the church, unique gifts to the church because they don't have to be paid, but they, they desire to serve the church with joy and they do it regularly. Or you have some settings where a church can't pay somebody. I'm in a church planting world all the time and I can tell you churches that just can't afford to pay a guy. So if a guy's going to go plant a church, he's got to decide to go get a full-time job and then do the work of a pastor as well at the same time. It just happens that way until over time that church can eventually afford to pay their pastor. What they should be doing is saving up money over time to be paying their pastor. It should be a priority. But Paul's point is clear. Paying the elder who does a good job It frees him, it frees his mind, it frees his heart to be able to give himself to God's people and not be worried about the encumbrance of money or where finances are going to come from. John Calvin in his sermons on this topic took one full section of one sermon talking about the temptations on a pastor when the church fails to do God's work and pays them and he says they're actually being a tool of Satan by not paying their pastor. I'll write on that tomorrow for some of you. Failure to do this, when the church is able to do this, does not honor nor care for leaders, nor does it honor or obey God. And I'm going to say it again. CLF, you've been great at this. You've been fantastic with this. So, So please, just again, just look at this something for the future that says, let's, let's keep this principle in mind that we want to keep paying our guys and taking care of them. But there's another point of the honor that I want to think, I want you to notice in the text that I think is worth addressing, and it's, It has to do with respect and encouragement. It has to go with the word honor. Notice Paul says he wants elders to be honored. When you think of the word honor, it means to hold in high regard. It means to value. It means to, it means to respect them, right? I'm a baseball fan. Some of you know that about me. I know it's shocking, you know, to some of you. If somebody today were to walk in the room and they had in their possession, A Honus Wagner rookie card. Some of you said, who cares? Big deal, not big deal. The most expensive baseball card in the history of baseball cards. And somebody walked in with that card. You would find me going, that's honor. If we were to hand Kelsey Miller, who was just up here playing a violin, an original Stradivarius, she would go, right? She'd lose her mind, actually, right? I mean, that's on honor is this like, wow. And you treat those things with respect. I wouldn't hand those things to my my nephew Rhett. Here, Rhett, take that and he's, you know, young, run with it, bud. No, I would say, Rhett, you're not touching this, step away. I'd block him out. I mean, I'd do everything, right? I mean, we're not touching Honus Wagner, right? I mean, that's the idea of honor. So listen, when when we honor our leaders, one of the ways we is by respecting them. Now, listen, leaders should not demand respect, but they should most certainly receive it and feel it. But I think we can also honor leaders by encouraging them. John Stott made a comment in his commentary about this that really reminded me of this importance. He says, sometimes we think that our leaders don't need our encouragement and only need the honor of the chief shepherd. But Paul thinks differently here. And if Paul thinks differently here, we would say, so does God. See, Paul is reminding us of something in this text. Our leaders are people too. They have a real emotion. They live real lives. They have real families. The things that you say to them, about them publicly, many times will land in their children's lap. Many times their wife will hear it. And as we've seen, they're doing real, honest, Hard work if they're working hard. Therefore, they should receive our respect and they should receive our encouragement. They need it. So give leaders who work hard a few things. You you give them double honor. You pay them and you respect them. You encourage them and you reward them. And again, you can see, can't you, the gospel's power here because contrast this with the rest of the world. What's the rest of the world doing to leaders? They're slandering them. They're disrespecting them. They're dishonoring them. They don't want to hear from them. They question them all the time. And what does God say to do in the church? We're to honor leaders. It's a powerful display of the gospel. Now, again, I will say this, respect and encouragement. See, you left your fantastic at it. Now, this leads us perfectly, I think, to the next point and the way we care for leaders, which seems odd when it goes to honor, which is the other side, hold them accountable. We care for leaders by holding them accountable. See, Paul seems concerned with elders who do a good good job, and he's concerned about those who don't do a good job. I love the fact the Bible's real about this. What do you do when you've got a guy that doesn't do his job? How do you address it? When I was a young man growing up in, in the ministry, I'll never forget an older pastor saying something to me about the ministry. He said, David, never forget that the ministry is where a lazy man can go to hide. And I'm telling you, in my—I don't know—I can't do the math now. Since 1952, 33 years of Christian ministry, I can tell you I've watched lazy men hide in the ministry. And the reason you can hide is it's a self-disciplined life. You have to make your own agenda. You got to make your own a schedule. You got to set meetings. You got to go after people. You got to study. You got to pray. You got to get yourself ready to do something every week because Sunday is always coming, right? It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's weighing on you every week, right? You leave Sunday, mor- Sunday morning, and the moment I get out of this pulpit on Sunday afternoon, I'm thinking, Sunday's always a coming. Because it is. And it's a disciplined work. And this text gives us some guidelines of what do you do with guys who don't do their job. Well, thank God for that. And he gives us four guidelines. And the first guideline is found in verse, verse 19. Make sure that you're concerned, your concerns, that you have your facts straight. Right? You can see that in verse 19 very clearly. It's important to realize Paul is talking about public sins and or misuse or failure to do the function of an elder. Right? These are serious concerns. I mean, imagine if week after week after week, I just came to the pulpit and said, hey, you know what? I think this week um, I think we're just going to, I don't know, where's our Bible's going to land? Well, I'd take one Sunday for our elders to say, hey, bud, we got an issue here, right? Okay, imagine if that happened. Or imagine if I was not functioning as a role of an elder. I was not caring, was not considerate, was not shepherding God's people. Imagine if any of our elders did that. Now, Paul is not talking here about private sins that might happen if somebody was impatient with you. They said something angry to their wife and you saw that. In that moment, Scripture would say, Matthew 18 kicks into gear. Go to them one-on-one, confront them, and tell them, hey, dude, I thought you treated your wife poorly. That's concerning to me. You're an elder. You're a Christian. And if he repents, you've won your brother. If he doesn't repent, suddenly now this stuff begins to kick into gear. These guidelines begin to take over. If you see an elder regularly practicing the same sin, and you've talked to him about it, or others have, He gives us some guidelines that we should consider. And Paul doesn't just want any accusation coming up against elders because he's worried about slander happening that can easily happen. So what does he say? I want accusations brought with two or three witnesses in the church. And what he means by that, it doesn't mean it has to be exactly two and three. He means make sure the accusations are truthful and they can be confirmed. Now, this is really, really important. Witnesses are to bring their concerns to the other elders, and they're not only to receive it, but the facts must be straight. Notice Paul is telling Timothy to receive these accusations as the senior pastor if they've been confirmed. Now, the reason we have to have them confirmed and the reason facts must be straight is because of what John Calvin wrote, which I think is very appropriate for our day. None are more prone to slander than godly leaders. Friends, I hope you realize as you see God at work at CLF, you must also be freshly aware that you have an enemy who's also at work at CLF. And here's what he is joyfully, happily conniving. He is depositing into your mind little doubts and questions about the guys that lead you and about God's word being taught and the way it's being taught. And he's putting little questions in your mind and he's just waiting for the right moment for you to speak it to the wrong person. He's waiting for facts not to be confirmed, yet to be seen like they're confirmed. And so you're noticing as God is at work, you have an enemy at work, and we're trying to, to protect, if you will, instead of ruining a pastor's life, we're trying to protect that life, right? Smear campaigns can ruin a leader's life and ministry. Listen, I am freshly aware, our elders are freshly aware that at any moment, at any given time, somebody can give a false accusation and what we've tried to build up in our lives and our ministries is over. It's over. It doesn't have to be true in our world anymore. It just has to hit Facebook. Then it becomes suddenly true. It can just get all over Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. This is how I saw Dave York act. Therefore, we've made an accusation. And knowing that Paul is writing to Timothy about how he's to lead the church. The implication is that Timothy is he shouldn't underprotect his leaders by allowing anyone at any time to just throw their leaders under the bus. But rather, accusations against an elder must be confirmed and the facts must be in order. They must have them confirmed for a reason. The second guideline you're going to notice is that those who continue in sin should be publicly rebuked. See, the goal of all confrontation, whether or not you bring it with two or three witnesses or one witness, is what? That they would repent. If it's true, they would submit themselves to God and they would no longer continue in the same sin, and sin should remain as private as possible. But if an elder does not repent after being confronted by these elders with these witnesses, what does the text say? He should be publicly rebuked. Why? Because he's in a public position. This doesn't mean he's put in stocks and we can throw tomatoes at him in the parking lot, okay? It just means that others in the congregation are to know how he sinned and that he won't change. And here's what's happening. So you might wonder why God said, let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, because you will incur a stricter judgment, right? That's what he's getting at. The reason for this public rebuke is because they're in a public... Public place of leadership, but other, also that others may have fear of sinning, meaning other elders may have fear of sinning because they'll see it serious, but also the church would see this. This type of situation is serious. It is painful. And let me tell you from experience, it is hard. And it should prove to the church. It should prove to other church elders and leaders and to the world that the church takes sin seriously in the church. We're not messing around here. It's about eternity. It's at stake. If leaders continue to live in sin, they should be publicly rebuked because of their public position and to bring fear, if you will, holy fear into the church. The third guideline. And you're going to notice we just talked about don't under protect them. The third guideline is don't over protect them. You can see this in verse 21 when Paul said that Timothy is to not show partiality. He's not to play favorites. And he talks about how difficult this is. You can imagine young Timothy. I mean, just think about this young guy. He shows up in Ephesus. A group of elders bring him into their lives. They love on him a little bit and they begin to care for him. And then suddenly one of those elders turns into a false teacher preaching a false gospel or sins against the church in such a way that it harms the church and it defames the name of Christ. Timothy was not to overprotect that leader. He's not to hold He's to hold these guidelines without prejudice, no matter what. I mean, what if this elder was the guy that fed him? What if it's the elder that housed him? What if it's the one that gave him a job as he got started and said, hey, bud, I know we don't have money to pay you right yet. Let me just bring you into my house. I'm going to give you this job of making tents because you did that with Paul, and I'll pay you a little bit. What if this guy's like an older brother to him? What if it's like a father? What if it's like brothers that he built the church with? It doesn't matter, Paul says. Don't overprotect these men. You treat them without prejudice. There should be no favoritism. See, this is the other side of protection. He's not to over, he's not, he's not only to protect them from slander, he's also to not overprotect them from favoritism and by playing favorites with them. And notice how serious Paul is about this. You see what he does in verse 21? In the presence of God, Jesus and the elect angels keep these rules without partiality. You know what he does? He calls in every witness of heaven. Hey, bud, if you want to know how serious I am about how to care for your church, well, God's seeing it, Jesus is seeing it, and and the angels are seeing it, the Spirit's seeing it, everybody's seeing it. Do this without partiality. And friends, knowing how hard this is, knowing how painful this is, knowing how sorrowful this is to the church, knowing how gut-wrenching this is, we must realize these are God's guidelines for the church, not our guidelines for the church. This is what God says about how he wants his church to be cared for. God is not partial, therefore we should not be partial by overprotecting leaders. Then you see the last guideline. Don't put people in leadership too quickly. There's a little idea that I once heard and it's really true. It's easier to put people in leadership than it is to take them out of leadership. It's easier to put people in leadership than it is to take them out of leadership. Notice verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now this laying on of hands isn't, like a police officer laying on of hands, right? This is a little different, right? This is the idea that's here is in the Old Testament of them laying hands on leaders or kings. And if you will transferring authority or acknowledging God's work in their life that they are gifted to lead. We see this in the New Testament church when <clears throat> they were, they laid hands on Timothy when he was a young lad. They did the same thing with other leaders where they laid hands on them as a recognition of being called by God and gifted by God for particular place or authority position in the church and paul told timothy don't be hasty in doing that take your time now in the context what's he dealing with he's dealing with sinful leaders who have been sinful so we could say on the one hand this means don't restore a sinning elder who's repented too quickly give it time I mean, all of us can think of moments like this. One example from my life growing up was in the town I grew up in. We had a dude that was a traveling pastor, and he was found out that the guy was having five different affairs in five different churches, and it got exposed. It was awesome. The guy got confronted. He needed to be. A month later, he was starting a brand-new church in a town 20 miles away called Grace Church. That's not what Paul's talking about, right? That brings a shame to the name of Christ. He's talking about being deliberate. We are not to restore people to a position of leadership too quickly. There is to be a process before restoring them to a place. If they are restored at all. Listen, I think it also be said here really quickly that there's a danger of putting people into a leadership position at all, period, too quickly. At the beginning. Remember, it's easier to put people in leadership than it is to take them out of leadership. And to be frank, as a young pastor, I had to walk this out painfully. It's easy to put people in leadership than it is to take them out of leadership. And it's really important to realize that's why it must be, we must not be too hasty in laying on of hands. So you might ask, well, when do we know? How do we know that? Well, the good thing is Paul tells us. In verses 24 and 25, notice what he says. There will be proof in the life when you restore someone. Their sin will be obvious. Even though it was conspicuous, it will come out. Or their good works, which were conspicuous, will come out. In other words, as we used to say in the great state of Texas, the proof will be in the pudding. You will know. As my historical hero Charles Spurgeon said when asked, when do we restore such a man who has sinned and yet repented? Here's what he said. When their repentance is as notorious as their sin, you will know. It will be obvious. Leadership placement or restoration should be a deliberate, patient process. It should give time for testing the person's character, theology, and gifts. And always remember the iceberg principle. You're only seeing 10% of the person's character. If you don't see it over time in various situations, see, that's why it's CLF, listen, honestly, people get been out of shape. Man, you guys are so slow with putting people into leadership. Yeah, we are. And I'm not afraid to say we are. In the last five years, we've had a lot of leaders come from this church, come to this church from other churches who are elders in other places. And people have said, why don't you make so-and-so an elder? He was an elder over here. And my response is, I don't know so-and-so that well. Well, you've known him for 20 years, but he hasn't been known to my church, nor do my people know him. See, here's the beauty of this. God will reveal if people should be in leadership in the church, if the church is willing to be as patient with God in God's process. There must be a deliberate process for restoration or placing someone into leadership. We must realize that, right? So listen, I, as a young guy growing up in ministry, all I ever wanted was to be in leadership because that was a sign of position. The older I got, Martin Luther's words come really clear. I'd rather have 40 years of training for 10 years of good ministry than 10 years of training and 40 years of lousy ministry. We must be not be hasty in laying on of hands. Now listen. Losing leaders in the church and at the church is terribly painful to the church. You, you've got you've to know that. People slandering leaders in the church is terribly painful to the church. But it's also painful to the other pastors. There's a little phrase I want you to notice in this book and in this chapter that speaks to this. It's actually in parentheses. It's in verse 23 when Paul makes this interesting statement to Timothy. Timothy, don't don't just drink water only, but drink a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, some of my more alcohol-free friends have said, see there, we're supposed to drink alcohol. This isn't Paul's point. Paul is revealing something here. Paul is talking about the reality of the stress the anxiety, and the pressure that's put on a man in pastoral ministry. We know something about this text. We know something about Timothy. Timothy was a fearful guy. He was anxious. He was a little nervous when he got to preach. He wasn't a very big man. He had a low physical constitution, meaning that Timothy was sick often. And many times he was sick in his stomach. His stomach just pained him often. We also know that the water during that time was very unsanitary, so they had to boil it to make it sanitary so they could drink it. And Timothy was probably drinking some of the unsanitary water and it was bothering him. We also know that wine was used in that day for medicinal purposes. So what are you reading here? You're reading the Apostle Paul caring for young Pastor Timothy by telling him this, Timothy, the pastoral ministry is hard. And I know that you're gonna, this is gonna affect you physically. Make sure, Timothy, that you take care of yourself. Wine could be good to calm your stomach, to steal your nerves and to settle you down and to let you rest at night. What this text says to you as a church member, it says that you need to be freshly aware on a regular basis of the pain, the sorrow and the hardship Of your leaders, none of us are going to talk to you about this, but the Bible does. So it's my job to talk to you about it. See, the joy of pastoral ministry is that you get to be with people in the most just crucible, crushing moments of their lives. There's nothing like standing with a father as he tells his two boys that their grandfather passed away and letting them weep on your chest. There's nothing like being with a widow who just lost her husband and have nothing to say to her, except you be there. There's no greater joy that you have than watching a family wrestle through the providence of God as they lost another baby. It's joyful, sorrowful, painful work. It hurts. And what this text does to us is it should make you, in a sense, realize in those moments when you're laying your head on your pillow or you're getting ready to you know, do something with your family to just for a moment, just pray, God, when I lay my head down on my pillow tonight, I'll sleep all night. Would you help my pastor not wake up at three o'clock in the morning worrying about me? Would you help my pastor as he comes out of that hard counseling situation, whatever it may be, to be able to go home and love on his wife and his family and not carry that burden to home? Would you give him rest when he's on his vacation rather than questioning, does he need a vacation? All he does is work on Sundays, right? Right? It should stir something in us to make us realize that this work is hard. Now, friends, listen, again, only the power of the gospel can make us care for one another like that. And only only the power of Christ. Otherwise, we won't care for one another. You won't care what I go through with my family, but you do. You won't care about our other elders, but you do. Why do you do that? Because Jesus cares for you, and he's put something in your heart for us, and he's put something in our hearts for you. See, see, don't don't forget that your leaders are people too. There's an amazing text in Ephesians 4. You can look this up sometime. It talks about when Jesus ascended to heaven. It says that Jesus gave gifts to the church. Now, you think of giving gifts as like tongues, prophecy, visions, dreams. No, you know what the gifts are? They're leaders. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. They're leaders. Meaning, oddly enough, hardworking elders and leaders among you are actually a gift to you and a gift to us. Therefore, what should we do with a gift? We should receive it. We should take care of it. We should joy be joyful that we have it, right? So that's why we should what? We should we should pay them, we should encourage them, and we should most definitely hold them accountable. We when we treat our leaders like this, we see the gospel at work. Now again, I want to say this: you have been remarkable at this. I, I cannot thank God enough. This church is uh, um, is. Easy to lead. And as Hebrews 13 says, you are a joy to us. You bring us joy because of who you are. I can't, we cannot thank God enough for you. I want you to hear that. We cannot thank God enough for you. But there's a warning. Let us never, never, think we have the corner of the market on this or anything. We are just beggars showing other beggars where the bread's at. And one day the tables will be turned and you'll say, here's some food for your soul. See, so let let's let's do, let's keep our hearts set on Christ, our minds submitted to his word, our knees bent in prayer and our eyes lifted up to God. Let's be that people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that the greatest shepherd is Jesus, the greatest pastor is Jesus. And I thank you that right now you are doing business with your people and you're doing business with them on whatever it is that you want to do business with them on. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for this church, for the joy that they've been to lead, for the sorrows that we've gone through, for the pains that we've felt, for the successes that you've brought. But I thank you, Lord, for right now what a demonstration of the gospel this church is. And I pray, oh God, I pray. May we never lose our sense of awe and wonder. May we never lose the sense of what do we have that we have not received from the hand of God. Help us continue to honor and care for one another and honor and care for our leaders and believing that as we faithfully plod in this life, doing those things and and other things in scripture, that you will bring about whatever increase you want because you're God and this is your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.